And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. One of the biggest lies that Satan ever promotes is that believing in Christ Jesus as your Savior is going to bring you a trouble-free life. Uh, The pitch goes something like this. Do you have problems? Then if you trust Jesus, he'll help you take care of your problems. And so the person provisionally trusts in Christ and all of a sudden his problems get worse, not better. And the enemy comes to him and says, see where trusting in Christ got you? You were doing better before you became a Christian. Well, then they stop following Jesus. That's, that's, Jesus warned about that in the four soils that when trouble and persecution comes that they drop away. Now, the Bible does promise uh, believers peace and joy, but it does not promise the absence of trials or freedom from persecution or even protection from violent death. It promises peace and joy in the midst of such trials as we rely on God and His promises. Now, remember, this is Tuesday. We're just continuing in this little saga there. Sunday, he's come in, uh, 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 triumphal entry, uh, what do you call that? Palm Sunday, thank you. And uh, then Monday, he clears the temple. Tuesday, he's, teach, he's taught all day long. And this is uh, probably on that same day, could be the next. But he's, this is his last part that he's doing here in, in Jerusalem. And as they're leaving the temple, one of the disciples commented about how impressive the temple was, that building. And by all accounts, it was a magnificent structure. It had been under construction for over 50 years. The rabbi said that uh, he who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his whole life. Now, it was just an offhand comment by one of the disciples. The other disciples were probably nodding in agreement when Jesus really shocked them. And here's what he said. The days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Wow. That's unthinkable. Now, to their credit, the disciples don't doubt Jesus, but they do ask when these things will take place and what will be the signs that would precede this momentous event. And Jesus responded with this lengthy word uh, known as the Olivet Discourse. Now, as with most prophetic sections of Scripture, there's some difficult interpretive uh, issues. We're not going to jump into those. We're going to look at the big picture here. Verses 5 through 24, which Tyler just read for us, that's our passage today, that focuses on the fall of Jerusalem as a preview of the more intense judgment that will happen at Christ's return. Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week. That's verses 25 through 28. So there are really multiple fulfillments of these prophecies leading up to that final fulfillment at the second coming of Jesus. Now, Jesus emphasized that many of these cataclysmic events uh, will take place before the end. So his word applies uh, applies to believers in trying situations down through the centuries as well as to those who are still alive just before Jesus comes again. So Jesus is showing his followers that when the world goes crazy, and it it just struck me when I said that this morning, and I asked, how many of y'all would agree that the world's kind of crazy? Yeah. When the world goes crazy, God's people can remain sane (laughs) by knowing that all things are under God's righteous, sovereign control. 
So let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you again for an opportunity to dive into your word, and we're going to be looking at your sovereignty and what that means for us. And so, God, we pray that you would give us clarity of thought to see Jesus' point here that in the end, yes, we should trust you. This world is a nasty, crazy place. But God, you are still seated on your throne. So God, just pierce our hearts with that, helps to trust you more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, Jesus' purpose was not to satisfy, you know, curiosity about the end times. How many of you are curious about the end times? Yeah, I mean, here's the, here's the trick. When Jesus comes again, we're going to know instantly all about the end times, okay? And until then, yeah, it might be a question mark or two. That's okay. What Jesus was trying to do here was just to instill assurance and faith in his disciples so they wouldn't fall away under intense persecution which they were going to face or world chaos for them it'd be the destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem and, and the scattering of the Jews there in 70 AD so today we're going to consider five points number one God knows in advance all things that will take place in this world now, we've seen number of, uh, numerous occasions where Jesus predicted his impending death, three to be exactly in Luke, that are recorded for us. Uh, it didn't surprise him, right? And we know by hindsight, by hindsight right, 2020, that yes, they, they did crucify him. Well, as Jesus explained in John 10, no one took his life from him. He laid it down on his own initiative. Now, Jesus, in our passage this morning, speaks both, about both big and little matters that God knows in advance. He knows about the total destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That's a big deal. He knows about deceivers who will come. He knows about wars, earthquakes, plagues, famines, and signs in the heavens. He knows future, future persecutions that will take place before kings and governors and, and also persecutions that will arise from family betrayals. He even knows in, in advance the preservation of the hairs of the head of all those who follow him. He knows the future of Israel and the course of the nations. Now you may think that everyone who believes in Christ believes that God knows all things in advance. But that's not so. In 1994, Clark Pinnock and several other uh, theologians published a book titled The Openness of God. Their view, their view, which is now called open theism, is really a radical form of Arminianism, and it argues that, and here I'm quoting, the God of the Bible is with us in time and does not know the future in absolute detail. Now, some of y'all, your eyes got big, some of your head cocked. That's a good thing, right? Uh, Greg Boyd, uh, he, he has fallen in this train. He's a, a professor of theology at a very prestigious school, and he holds this view. He's written several books. I've read one of his books. It was really hard to swallow. He believes that God cannot know the future actions of his creatures until first he creates the creatures, and then they make their decision. And in his point of view, God is reactionary. In other words, when you do something, he adjusts his plan. And he's good at what he does. They acknowledge that. He's very good at what he does. Does that give you any confidence whatsoever? It doesn't me. Right? 
It's a scary thought, right? I hope that you all believe that, yes, indeed, uh, God does, in fact, know in advance all things that will happen. But we've got to take it a step further. Point number two, God has ordained in advance, in advance all things that will take place in this world. Jesus says that the wars and the disturbances must take place. That indicates God's settled purpose. It's going to happen. Concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, he says that it will happen in order that all things that are written may be fulfilled. In other words, destruction of Jerusalem is going to fulfill prophecy. Well, God sovereignly, think about this, God sovereignly chose Israel from all other nations. He actually created Israel for this purpose to be his people and to bring forth the Savior of the world from the Jews. Now, he predetermined by his sovereign plan that Israel would crucify her Savior. And he also sovereignly determined to judge Israel for her sin of killing her Savior. Now, uh, in, in, my, in my weekly re, uh, daily reading, um, I'm in a section of Isaiah that I love, and it covered it in two days, which was, for me, just cool. It's Isaiah 40, let's start over here, 40 to 48. We see more God talking about himself in these verses than anywhere else in Scripture. It's just, it's just fun to read. Well, here's something from Isaiah 46. He he's, he's, um, declares to his disobedient people at this point, he says, For I am God and there is no other. What was Israel doing? They were worshiping foreign gods. All right. I am God and there is no other. Um, I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure truly I have spoken truly I will bring it to pass I have planned it surely I will do it now a minute ago I talked about open theism that came out in 94 it was it was a hot topic for the next probably 10 years I went to a Ligonier conference and somebody asked a question at the Q&A. You know, you got a bunch of smart guys up on the stage and somebody asks, what do you think is the future of open theism? And R.C. spoke up real quick and says, eh, says it won't be hanging on very long. It is just too, too against standard orthodoxy. It, in other words, it's just way too out in left field. The fact that God does not know the future. And he's right. How many of you, before I talked about it today, have heard of open theism? One, two, two or three. It's what it was in the first service as well. You didn't have to read. I saw you three times. Yeah, yeah. Periphery's good vision. Uh, yeah, the reason you don't hear much about it is because it is so non-biblical, it never gained any traction. And it's just kind of fallen by the wayside. That's a good, that's a good thing. Well, Paul affirms in Ephesians 1.11 that God predestined us according to his purpose <clears throat> who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, you may not like the thought that, that, that God ordains evil as well as good. Uh, many Christians blame everything bad that happens on the devil as if he did it apart from God without considering where that line of thinking actually leads. If the devil, devil is able to do anything outside of God's plan, 
then he is a force at least equal in strength, if not greater, than God. Now that would mean that there is a chance that the devil could thwart, thwart the sovereign plan of God and achieve his evil purpose over and against God's holy purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a, a frightening prospect to me. The Bible clearly shows, particularly in the story of Job, that the devil can only go as far as God permits. When God approached Satan, I mean, when Satan approached God, God was up in heaven, Satan comes along with the sons of men or sons of God, and he's talking and, and God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's blameless. He's cool. And Satan says, yeah, but that's only because you have a hedge of protection around him. Take away his wealth and his prosperity and his family and he'll curse you. And, he, and the devil says, don't let me do it. He says, you do it, God. God says, okay, you can do this, but no more. That's round one. So he takes, takes all of his wealth, takes ten, all ten of his children. The only one he leaves is his wife. I, I find that very interesting. And she's the one that next time says what? Oh, why don't you just curse God and die? That's why he left her alone, because he knew that she would be that way. So round two goes, comes around. Hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's cool. He's following me. Well, of course, but any man will curse you if you take away his health. And he says, why don't you? You take away his health. And God goes, okay, you can take away his health, but you cannot kill him. Do you see? The devil is on a very short leash. He cannot do anything that has not already passed through the sovereign fingers of God. Uh, you've heard me say this before. Spurgeon's one that said that the sovereignty of God is that which crushes the heathen, but which the Christian, it's the pillow that the Christian rests his head on at night. God is sovereign. I can rest. <laughs> Especially if you're, if you're his child. If you only had a, a grip of that sovereignty. So Satan, yeah, he does some crazy things, but he is on that very short leash. Now, John Calvin observes that none of these predicted disasters in verses 9 through 12 happened accidentally. They are all under God's sovereign hand. And then he applies it to believers saying, For nothing has a more powerful efficacy to bring us into subjection, meaning to God, than when we acknowledge that those things which appear to be confused, interesting word for him to use, those things which are either confused, chaos, are actually regulated by the good pleasure of God. Yeah, this world can get crazy, but guess what? God is still enthroned. Um, who was it? Wanda. Wanda McKenzie. She was the last one out of the sanctuary at the first service. I, I'll give you an example. She's got friends who are in Tallahassee. They have a 23-year-old son who just died a couple days ago in a car accident. In case you don't know, that's devastating. Absolutely devastating. They don't have a pastor. And they're believers. I should, well, the church they attend doesn't have a pastor right now. So she said, would you be willing to meet with them and just talk with them and pray with them? I will, um, she said, I will call them and see if it's okay. And I was like, heck yeah. I'll be there in a heartbeat. But that's, they're going to have to rely on the sovereignty of God. 
in the fact that God doesn't make mistakes. Goodness. Sovereignty of God is, it's not easy to swallow. You will grapple with it. But when you accede to it, when you give into the sovereignty of God, that's when you'll start to trust that, yes, he does, he does indeed know what is best. And he will get you through it. Now, you're probably thinking, if God not only knows everything in advance, but also ordains everything in advance, then he is responsible for evil. Well, no, he's not. This is an age-old question, you know, for millennia. People have been trying to figure out, where has evil come from? Well, my third point is that although God has ordained all things, he is not responsible for evil. If God were actually responsible for evil, he'd have no right to judge the wicked. They would simply reply, I only did what you made me to do. Now, believe it or not, Paul addresses that very argument in Romans chapter 9. I'll let you find that for yourself. Jesus is, Jesus is teaching here that Jerusalem would be destroyed and trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. We know it's the Romans. And Israel would, would be led captive into all the nations as a judgment for not recognizing the day of her visitation. Peter states that although God predetermined the death of Jesus, and those are his words, those who nailed him to the cross were guilty for what they did. Now, Scripture affirms some, uh, you know, just some solid things about I'm just going to read a few here for you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. Psalm 145, 17. He is good, and he does good. Psalm 119, 68. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. Habakkuk 1, 13. How about this one? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, who is it that said that? It's twice that it's in Scripture, Revelation 8 and Isaiah 3. Who is it that says that? Is it man? No, it's the cherubim who have never sinned. They're confirmed in righteousness, and they proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, our little peanut minds... Brains have a hard time reconciling God's absolute sovereignty over, over everything and also his absolute holiness. But you know what? Scripture affirms both. We must submit to its testimony. Well, number four, God will righteously judge all who reject his son. Now, Jesus refers to, G to Jerusalem's destruction as days of vengeance. It will bring great distress upon the land and wrath to his people. Well, of course, in, in AD 70, the Roman general Titus laid siege to the city and sure enough, completely destroyed it. Now, he may have exaggerated, but Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, he says that about 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered. The Roman soldiers actually tore apart this temple stone by stone. Do you know why they did that? It's because first they burnt it. Nothing happened to the temple being burned except what was inside it because the temple was made out of stone. But, what, but there was a lot of one particular thing that's really nice in the temple. What was it? Gold. Tons and tons of gold. Well, it melted in the fire. So you know what they did? They took every stone and toppled it over 
to get all of the gold. You know what that means? Jesus' prediction came true. Every stone was overturned. Very interesting. Now, God's judgments come in two forms, temporal and eternal. His temporal judgments fall on nations and, it, and individuals according to his inscrutable wisdom. For instance, God told Abraham, this is back in Genesis 15, that his descendants would be captive in a foreign land for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. Very interesting statement. Their sin is not full, so your people are going to be enslaved 400 years. When their sin, when that 400 years was up, was full to the brim, Joshua was the one in charge. And he told Joshua, destroy them all. It was a temporal judgment on a morally corrupt people in response to hundreds of years of sin. Now, in his mercy, in allowing the Canaanites to exist that long, God let his chosen people remain in slavery for long centuries before using them to execute his righteous judgment. Now, when God's temporal judgment falls on a nation, everybody suffers. There's no way to get around this. Jesus proclaims woe, especially on the women who are with child and who are nursing their babies at the time of uh, Jerusalem's destruction. Folks, if God's temporal judgment falls on America, we're all going to suffer. God's temporal judgments, they're only a warning of the far worse eternal judgment that's coming on the whole, on the whole earth. John talks about it in Revelation 20. He, he describes a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. All whose names are not written, found, or not found written in that book of life are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Now Israel came under God's temporal judgment because she rejected her Savior. Well, likewise, every person who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will face the eternal wrath of God. Now, if the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had heard his prediction concerning the temple, they would have scoffed. Oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, they killed him, didn't they? They, killed, they beat and killed his crazy followers who said that he had raised from the dead. And life kind of went on as usual for more than 35 years. Some of those Jewish leaders grew old and died before uh, Jesus' predictions came true. If you had interviewed them on, his, on their deathbed, they would have said, well, Jesus was mistaken. The temple still stands in all its glory. How wrong they were. Just because God's judgment is delayed does not mean that it will not happen. Now, many make the same fatal mistake concerning God's eternal judgment. Just because for almost 2,000 years, Christ has not returned to judge the earth as he said he would, that doesn't mean that he's not going to do so in the future. Peter talks about this and he says it's, it's, just, it's just the mercy of God that he hasn't yet because he desires all men to be saved. Well, Jesus' warning is clear. He will return in power and great glory 
And then it's going to be too late for those who have rejected him to repent. It will be over. So how are we who believe in Christ, how are we to live in these difficult, crazy times until he comes? Well, point number five, God's people are responsible to persevere uh, in obedience and witness in this evil world, even in the face of persecution and martyrdom. Jesus spoke these prophetic words to encourage his disciples to persevere, if need be, even unto death. He didn't want hardship and persecution to surprise them. He gives three areas where we need to really be on guard. A, to preserve and persevere, excuse me, in obedience and witness, we must be on guard against spiritual deception. Jesus says, see to it that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Jesus says, do not go after them. Now, by saying that they will come in his name, Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that they will blatantly claim to be the Christ. Some are so, are so bold. Uh, but true Christians are not likely to be deceived by such obvious error. The more deceptive errors come from within the church couched in biblical terms. Just like the open theism we talked about. You had these highbrow scholars putting forth a case but it's from within the church. Jesus said that false Christs would arise working miracles if in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. Well, where do the elect meet on a regular basis? Right here in the church. The most damage can come from an assault from within. Now, another major area of deception is what's known as the Christian unity movement. We've long been urged to drop all of our doctrinal differences and come together on the basis of our common love for Jesus. In the process, core truths are being sacrificed on that altar of love and unity. But if we give up the importance of truths like justification by faith alone for the sake of unity, we have denied true Christianity. Not only that, we, we are most unloving if we compromise such doctrines because a person's eternal destiny depends on believing such truth. So Satan's most effective deception always comes from within. So beware. Will be to persevere in obedience and witness. We must be on guard against uh, fear in the face of political and natural catastrophes. Jesus says that wars, that's your politics, <laughs> wars are political. Jesus says that wars, disturbances, earthquakes, plagues, famines, and terrors, and great signs from heaven will all take place before the end comes. Now, many of these things happened prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, and they continued throughout history. And barring the Civil War, we have been spared war on our own soil, but the terrorists of 9 11, they showed us how unconventional weapons could easily wreak havoc in our own nation. Jesus commands us not to be terrified at such things. How many's blood pressure, how many of y'all's blood pressure went up on 9-11 if you were around when that happened? If you were old enough, I mean, yeah, you were like, what? What's going to happen? Now, that next Sunday, that next Sunday was the biggest attendance in church probably ever because there wasn't a church in the nation at least for our country, that was packed. 
Now, we seat 900 people at Celebration, and we had two services where people were shoulder to shoulder crammed in there. And their question was, what in the, the world's gone crazy? What in the world is going on? Give them one week, and we were back to normal. It was amazing. Well, he tells us not to be terrified at such things. His command to the disciples to flee Jerusalem when they see the armies beginning to surround her, that shows that we may need to take precautions to protect our lives. Now, there's nothing godly about courting danger or death. But if we take due precaution and yet face death, we can do it calmly with trust that the God of Jacob is our stronghold and that he will guide us even through death. We'll see, to persevere in obedience and witness, we must be on guard against compromising our testimony under persecution. Now, we Americans, Christians, we, we faced very little persecution, but we need to be ready for it. We need to make up our minds in advance that we will be faithful witnesses, even in the face of death. Jesus explains that persecution will give us an opportunity for testimony, that's how it's translated in our English versions. The Greek word in verse 13 is martyr. It's plain as day. Martyr. He promises that we don't need to worry about what to say. He'll give us a mouth to speak and the wisdom to confound our opponents. Now, this is nothing less than a claim to deity on Jesus' part. Uh, he, he couldn't do this uh, at all unless he were omnipresent. But he warns us that even family and close friends will betray us and that we will be hated by all on account of his name. Now, if we hold to Jesus Christ as the only way to God, if we hold to the utter sinfulness of the human heart, if we hold to faith and not works as the only way of salvation, we will be branded as intolerant, narrow-minded, and unloving. Southern Baptists have been accused of, of hate crimes uh, because they, they stated that people of other major religions need salvation. And we say that today, right? They're not following Christ. They, they need salvation. My point is persecution could easily be around the corner for us. So be ready. Now, when Jesus says that not a hair of your head will perish, He's not a promising immunity from death. Matter of fact, just a couple of verses earlier, he said that it's going to, it will happen to some. They will die for the faith. He means that if we are faithful witnesses, even if they kill the body, they cannot touch the soul. By endurance and bearing witness to the truth, uh, we prove ourselves to be true followers of Christ and we gain our souls. So when this whole world goes crazy, uh, we can remain calm, we can remain sane by knowing that all things are under, are under God's righteous, sovereign control. And even if we die for our faith, guess what? We're going to live forever with Him. Now, Todd Nettleton is the host of Voice of the Martyrs radio program. And he wrote this book, and I picked it up a couple months ago, When Faith is Forbidden... 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. It's a very good book. I'm, I'm not finished with it, but when I finish, if you would like to borrow it, it, it's really excellent. It just gives you an idea of what's going on around the world. 
And this is in his introduction. He says, Early on in my time at Voice of the Martyrs, I had a very different idea about visiting persecuted Christians. I remember my first Voice of Martyrs trip to China. Our team was going to meet a pastor who had been arrested multiple times in the previous three months. He, he led a large, unregistered church that met on Tuesdays. And police and religious affair authorities had taken to arresting him each Tuesday morning so that he couldn't lead the services. They'd hold him all day and even overnight and then let him go just so he couldn't lead his growing flock. So as we went to visit, I had a picture in my mind of this poor abused pastor. I thought how much of a blessing it would be to him for foreigners to come and cheer him up because he'd no doubt be feeling deeply discouraged. My ideas couldn't have been much further from reality. When we arrived at his apartment, he was smiling and joyful. He was thrilled that people in his area were meeting Jesus Christ, thrilled his flock was growing. If the price of effective ministry was a few measly arrests or a few nights in jail, then so what? It was worth it to see lives change and Christ's kingdom grow. I remember clearly how he showed us the bag he took with him to church. It had a blanket and a change of clothes. It was his jail bag, and he was packed and ready to go. I turned to his wife, sitting to the side as we sipped cups of tea. Don't you worry about him, I asked, pointing to the pastor. Why should I be worried, she answered through the translator. God will take care of him. Whoa. God will take care of him, and he'll take care of us as well. So we all need to ask, do I have that type of confidence in the righteous, sovereign God? If you do, guess what? You can stand firm even when the whole world goes crazy because your trust is in the faithful God. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the challenge of your word to submit to your sovereignty is not easy to do, particularly in our culture where we're taught to, 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 to pull ourselves up by our, our bootstraps and to, to be our own independent being and what have you. And Father, we, everything we have, even our existence, we derive from you. So God, I pray that you would help us to embrace the idea of your sovereignty and that you love us supremely. And we can trust you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you, have you trusted Christ? Have you turned to him? We, we've been talking about the fact that the, the world is messy. It's chaotic out there. It's broken. Yeah, uh, that's because of sin. God didn't create it that way. It became that way after Adam and Eve sinned. And it's part of the curse. And it's been a downhill <laughs> Uh, free fall ever since not really a free fall God's grace still abounds doesn't it but if you're if you recognize that chaos and you see chaos and turmoil and uh, just disturbance in your life and you're not you don't know where to go what to do yeah that's God saying hey I'm here all right he sent his son to die on the cross so that you might have eternal life. All you have to do is trust in Him. Yesterday we had the ABCs, right? How many remember what the ABCs are? A, A, you remember? Yeah, what is it? A, admit that you're a sinner, right? That's the first thing. You have to recognize you need a Savior. That's the bad news. You have to know the bad news before you know the good news. So yes, admit that you're a sinner and turn from your sin. B, what's believe? 
what's believe? <laughs> B is believe, right? Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And then C, confess with your mouth, 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 that Jesus, talking's hard, Tyler, that, that Jesus is Lord. Those are the ABCs. Do you need to do that today? Do you need to trust Jesus Christ with your life? If you do, you need to come forward and talk to me about it. If you're a believer, I hope you're challenged this morning just to have a realistic understanding of the sovereignty of God and that He is in control. When this world goes crazy, He is still seated on His throne. Our lives should reflect that. Did you know that you cannot die until God says, it's time for you to die? You know, this is why some missionaries are so bold. It's because they know they will not die until God says, come home. Sometimes it's early. It was early in Stephen's life, wasn't it? We don't know how old he was, but he was probably in his 30s or 40s. It happens all the time where people give their, literally give their life for Christ. They die in testimony to Him, but that's okay. That was God's doing. Does this sovereignty of God, does it affect the way you live? It should, down to your core. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.